from the EAH team. Welcome to Everything About Hydrogen. This is the podcast that explores the world of hydrogen and its derivative technologies and interrogates how it is changing the world of energy as we know it. Join host Patrick Malloy, manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, Alicia Eastman, President of Intercontinental Energy, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, as the team speak to some of the most innovative and exciting players in the industry. If you're a fan of the show, we would love if you'd leave us a five-star review for everything about hydrogen wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help boost us up the charts and help more people find us. And with that, I'll leave it to the team and let's get on with the show. Hello there, everybody. It's good to have you all here. As uh, it is a Sunday afternoon, our listeners, you know, would be delighted to know that we work so hard on the Sundays. What are you guys up to on your fine Sunday afternoons? Uh, Alicia, why don't we start with you? Oh, I am doing all of the work that I didn't get enough time to do last week. <laughs> but, uh, but but very good reasoning. Uh, I was at the International Vienna Energy and Climate Forum, um, which UNIDO hosted uh, last week, uh, the UN International Development Organization. And... It had a lot of crazy things, including this AI dog that I've seen on Black Mirror and, and it was really frightening. Why is there an AI dog at a Unido event? <laughs> Just because they can? I don't know. It was it was actually held this that this gorgeous palace, the Hofburg Palace, and it's a huge place. And then there was a section with like, lots of different maybe energy saving devices. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but there was a very scary sort of AI dog. Um, <laughs> I mean, but the more interesting one from a business perspective. Uh, I won't spoil the big reveal at COP, but it's already been announced that there's a new organization in town, which is an amalgamation of a number of other ones. And it's called the International Hydrogen Trade Forum. It was launched on the sidelines of COP of uh, G20 in Goa last summer. It's dedicated to accelerating the speed of hydrogen trade. How many trade groups on hydrogen are there? Seriously, <laughs> people are making bank out of this. I mean, I, I, they've got to be over, I don't know, international trade groups in the space, over 20 by now. Like, it's crazy. Like, how do you guys have so much time to do them all? <laughs> this one is actually going to make a, a, a big difference because of who the, all the partners are. So I, I think, well, you'll find out after COP exactly what they're going to get going, but it's not all the same, same. It, it is something that is actually going to get hydrogen moving faster and traded. And so it was, it was pretty exciting. Yeah. So uh, now I'm going to just catch up stuff I should have done last week. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Well, yeah. I mean, no, no rest for the wicked. And what about you, Patrick? Are you equally uh, swamped with the, uh, international trade bodies i feel uh, like i'm talking to the un when i've got you guys on the line sometimes um <laughs> what have you been i was just to? gonna say i'm gonna set up i'm gonna set up a new trade body apparently um no uh i have not set up any new organizations since we've last spoken thankfully um yeah good i think we're um in the happy bliss of post at least the initial announcements as we discussed with the folks good folks at doe and sunita uh, sachapal on the last episode of the post uh, hydrogen hubs invitations going out and coming into obviously all the manic forthcomings with with cop this year so plenty left to be doing not quiet times but yeah on we go 
What about you, Chris? It's like, I presume everything's just you know nice and relaxed in London. Nothing, nothing much going on. Yeah, I mean, you know, exactly. It's all very, very chilled. Um, you know, I'm I'm having a very domesticated, very calm, casual life. You know, that's that's what I do these days. So I just uh, I go to lovely events like the Santander Hydrogen um, uh, Banking Forum that was a couple of weeks ago, and that was good fun being with the team there. Big thanks to Santander for hosting and. Um, yeah, tra- actually, to be fair, I've, I've probably done a bit more traveling um, this year than I'd uh, thought I would at the start of the year. So I'm trying to try and slow it down a little bit. I was also at Gitex with um, Barclays and um, a couple of others. So um, I'm looking forward to a month of broadly in in London, um, but with a trip that uh, Alicia tempted me to, which was too good to say no to uh, Monaco for the Monaco Hydrogen Forum, um, which uh, is a pretty cool place to do a hydrogen conference, it has to be said. So um, uh, that's kind of my... The only thing that's dragging me out of my lair in London until then. But look, speaking of travel and uh, speaking of UN and all things international, Alicia feels like this is very much the topic or field of area of expertise of our guest that we have on the show today. Do you want to tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, sure. Johanna Christensen is the chief executive officer and the co-founder of the Global Maritime Forum. Uh, which is an international nonprofit organization committed to shaping the future of global seaborne trade to increase sustainable long-term economic development and human well-being. So they have a lot of different types of members, um, shipping companies, different fuels companies, uh, seafarers unions, all all sorts of people who are involved in in shipping. And She is a sustainability specialist with a focus on designing and leading public-private partnerships in high-profile international environments, as you aptly pointed out, (laughs) and uh, engaging uh, business in creating a sustainable future. I think that's the big difference. It's it's not all just about the the UN entities or, or sort of the multilaterals, but she pulls in business. To that, you know, to get things actually done, and so she also started alongside Ocean Action and World Economic Forum the Getting to Zero Coalition, and that is an industry-led platform for collaboration that brings together leading stakeholders from across maritime and fuels value chains, along with the, the financial sector and others committed to making commercially viable zero emission vessels. A scalable reality by 2030 and full decarbonization by 2050. So I've had the pleasure of working with the GMF team and going to a number of GMF's annual events, policy and regulations, and also with the Getting to Zero Coalition on the Green Shipping Corridors. I, I think, well, Patrick has probably had a lot of similar uh, interactions as well. But we can move on to... Uh, hearing from Johanna herself, what, how she got where she is and, and her background and, and sort of what she's focused on now. Joanna, it's really lovely to have you on the Everything About Hydrogen podcast, and hopefully between my um, husky voice, which is sadly cold-related as opposed to fun party-related, you can hear my questions. So as a starter for 10 for our guests, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background, your journey to running the Global Maritime Forum, and I guess just a little bit more fundamentally about the group itself and getting to Zero Coalition? Yeah, sure. 
So I have come from outside of the maritime sector, although by now uh, I've probably been working with maritime about 10 years. So I, now I feel like a bit more part of the sector than I, than I used to when I first got into this. Um, so my journey into it was actually that I, uh, I did a consulting job uh, for a uh, group based in uh, Copenhagen, the Danish Ship Owners Association, which at the time was uh, looking to set up an annual forum that would bring together senior decision makers uh, from across the maritime value chain to discuss long run challenges for the sector and figure out, you know, how can we devise solutions to some of these challenges. At the time, I had like lots of different experience, but part of my experience was that I had worked for the World Economic Forum in part in developing the agenda for the annual Davos meeting um, and a number of other events that they do around the world. And because the sort of the idea for this thing that the Danish Ship Owners Association wanted to do was sort of Davos of shipping, they, you know, they needed something. When, when I had that experience, they're like, oh, she looks like she could say something relevant about how to do that, right? So I developed a strategy for that. And that became an event that we did three years in a row, an annual gathering where we brought together about 250 or so senior stakeholders on an annual basis. And they discussed lots of different challenges, including shipping's decarbonization. Of course, when you get together senior decision makers and ask them to come up with ideas for how to address big challenges, they're like, okay, we have all these great ideas, now what do we do? And that became the impetus for setting up the Global Maritime Forum as a platform for collaboration and change. And so that's what I've been running now. I helped set it up. I was one of the co-founders. Uh, and I'm now the CEO of the Global Maritime Forum, and we've been uh, in operation for approximately or a little over seven years. And uh, yeah, <laughs> so that's my journey into it. Maybe I can talk a little bit. So, what does that then mean, platform collaboration? Yeah, I think I think I think so, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, what that means in our context is, let's take a big challenge like decarbonizing a sector. In this case, shipping. Uh, that's not something that any one entity, any one company, individual, or even one part of the value chain can solve on their own. It's something that requires all parts of the system, like so the full maritime ecosystem, and probably other ecosystems that has it interfaces with fuel providers, with policymakers, with their customers and whatnot. Like everything needs to kind of work together in tandem. And that's what we try to do. We try to bring all those different stakeholders together and facilitate collaboration, both in sort of more conceptual levels, sort of understanding what the challenge is and developing ideas from how we might solve them, but then also in more practical ways. And we can get into that over the course of this uh, this podcast. One of the things that we did is we established the Getting to Zero Coalition. It was launched in 2019 at a UN summit. At the time, it was a relatively small coalition. In the meantime, it's well over 200 stakeholders, primarily companies from shipping, engine manufacturers, uh, fuel suppliers, cargo interests, financial sector insurance. So all this difference of the shipping ecosystem, if, if you will, but also international institutions like the World Bank, regulators from different countries, uh, knowledge institutions uh, like Rocky Mountain Institute, and knowledge institutions like University College London and others that each contribute with their respective knowledge to understanding this challenge and potentially working together on solving some of them. And so this coalition has been working together for the better part of four years and has produced a lot of output. Uh, in some instances, that's reports and the like, analyses, sort of trying to influence the industry agenda, if you will, just sort of under the understanding of what this challenge is about and how we solve it, engaging with policymakers and also facilitating some more concrete projects 
Okay, so and, and maybe that was just a follow-up I was just going to have for people who are less familiar, because I think the thing here is that this is an episode where Alicia is in home territory, and I am very much not in home territory. So for the listeners who are less familiar, I might sort of come back to that too. Uh, knowing not a lot about the shipping world, but for my sins previously being in the marine insurance business, um, shipping is a industry that actually is quite collaborative by nature. And certainly in the insurance market has always been quite collaborative. If you think about the convoy system to overcome piracy, that was very collaborative. If you think about the war in Ukraine and shipping grain, that was very collaborative. Do you feel that there is something different in the way that people perceive the challenge around net zero and collaboration there, where it's kind of a much bigger but also much longer term thing and the impacts are less immediate today than these other collective action issues where the shipping industry has had an immediate issue which they can all rally around together because there's an immediate impact and they see the immediate benefit how how have you seen that that's a really good question i think in general the sector benefits from having global fora so it has an international regulator which i think makes it probably the envy of a a lot of other industries that are trying to address long-run challenges that also means that it can be quite effective at, at solving immediate challenges as well, because it has fora in which to engage collaboratively. That being said, I think what makes decarbonization even more challenging is that it's not something that shipping can solve on its own, right? It needs cargo. So pretty much everything gets transported by sea, right? So that means everybody, <laughs> I guess, is a way to say, well, other major interests, whether it's the mining industry or car industry, the auto industry, whether it's big sort of consumer goods companies, there are many sectors that have a big interface and a big role to play vis-a-vis shipping decarbonization because they determine to a large degree, you know, what will be the cost and will they be willing to pay a premium and something we can dig much more into. I think that's that's one of the big challenges. I think there's also another challenge, which is around needing to engage with new stakeholders. So so far, over decades and decades, probably the better part of a century, shipping has pr- primarily engaged with oil majors. And they may be in a position to provide some of the zero emission solutions for shipping in the future, but they might not, right? There are other uh, potential uh, counterparties for the sector that they don't necessarily have in their existing set of stakeholders and they don't have existing networks with. And so part of what we see as our job in the Getting to Zero Coalition is actually to bring some of those stakeholders, such as Alicia and her and her, and her compatriots or co- collaborators or competitors alike, right, into that work and, and creating connections and, and a sort of a common understanding of what's going to, what does Alicia need in order to make projects happen? And what does the shipping industry in or, need in order for Alicia's projects to be relevant for them or um, appropriate for their usage? And what are the needs that they have, right? So, so this is the sort of thing that we might do. And what are some of the challenges here that are specific to shipping? There's also, there's some other basic things, which, are, you know, it's a hard to abate, or it's considered one of the hard to abate sectors. I think uh, amongst those, I think shipping has done a really good do- job of actually collaborating and trying to move things forward and also being supported by that global regulator in setting high ambition and kind of trying to push things forward um, as quickly as possible. I mean, it, it's definitely collaborative. I, I think it can sometimes be an issue because no one wants to do anything alone. So everybody wants, okay, if we're going to do this, everybody's going to do the same thing and everyone's going to you know, hurt or not hurt you know, equally. And that can sometimes slow things down if you don't have the first movers or the, the people who are willing to sort of be on the bleeding edge for a little bit and then let other people follow. But, um, but overall I've, I've found it to be completely um, 
surprisingly uh, collaborative and just people really trying to figure out a solution, you know, that, that works for everybody. And, it, and it's not just shipping companies and it's not just, you know, the wealthy ones. It's, it's for everybody. So I, I've been very impressed with the industry and having only kind of fallen in love with it myself like three years ago. Uh, so even even more than you, um, but you, as everyone knows, very passionate. Um, so um, I, I would just love it if you could maybe explain to the listeners a little bit about the IMO results from this uh, summer from the MEPC eighty. Their their sort of new plan, kind of the. I, I mean, I think it was a great result. Um, but but maybe you could explain unpack it a bit uh, for them. Sure, absolutely. And I, I agree, it was a great result and one that we are just so pleased and I think will be a, it's a huge milestone for the industry. So basically what happened was that the International Maritime Organization adopted a net zero target at or near 2050. But for the purposes of this conversation, let's just say 2050 because it's, it's close enough. <laughs> and I think what for us, what that does, it sends this really clear signal that uh, shipping is committed to, to decarbonization and that sh- the shipping sector will be a long-term, long-term source of fuel demand. There are also some inter- interim targets that are important to take note of. Uh, I think the most important one in the immediate future is this target of 5 to 10% uptake of zero or near zero greenhouse gas emission technologies, fuels or energy sources. And that's a little bit of a mouthful, but it's basically to say, say approximately five to 10% uptake of zero emission fuels for shipping by 2030. And in our parlance that the 5% goal translates into about 600 medium sized container ships, relatively large container ships, or 30 million tons of ammonia or methanol within this decade in terms of the sort of what's needed to reach that goal. So that's quite a, that's quite a significant amount. And I think that's, that's, that's a, the idea. And what's really exciting about this is that it's a way of saying, you know, we need to, we need to mature the technologies so that in the next decade, so post 2030, that we can scale up aggressively. And there are some uh, additional interim targets for the subsequent decades as well. But I think it's really important to think about this, like this first objective as a way of setting an objective for maturing the technology so we can rapidly scale up after 2030. There's a, also, as part of the agreement, a work plan for binding regulations. And I often emphasize binding because what's a bit different about the International Maritime Organization to some of the other kind of international climate bodies, such as UNFCCC, is that they are binding, right? So what the work plan states is that the IMO will agree before the end of 2025, a set of binding regulations that will enter into force by the end of 2027. So what might those look like? Well, those could be, uh, they've already actually stated what it's going to be a mix of economic and technical measures. So that could be a price on carbon or some other fee bait or something like that. So some kind of economic tool and then some kind of technical tool like a fuel mandate or something like that, right? So it's it's this combination of, of things that's supposed to help us achieve the target and that it's supposed to be aligned with the objectives that have been set um, earlier in the summer. And that's then, of course, there's other stuff happening as well. So uh, there's been quite a lot of work in the EU as well over the past uh, year. So EU regulations kick in already from next year. And that starts with shipping's inclusion in ETS. 
and then uh, phasing in uh, something called fuel EU maritime. And while we don't necessarily see that as being, it's just not strong enough to be sort of an immediate game changer, um, but we have done some analysis that points to if you combine different schemes, so if you combine fuel EU maritime and inclusion ETS with sort of IRA type subsidies, then you can actually cl close the cost gap for some of these zero emission fuels already this decade, right? So, which is quite an exciting finding and which could really help vis-a-vis -vis that target of reaching that 5% uptake. And certainly for vessels that trade within the EU, you could get there even sooner. So that's, uh, that's, that's quite, quite promising. So we should all, so the job's done. We're all on the way. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, the I'm job's not. done from the ambition level setting. I think we're, the job is going to be incredibly difficult to get those binding regulations in place. So I, I want to be mindful that we're not saying the job's done because getting countries to agree on what those are going to be is going to be quite difficult. But because they've set a timeline, it's going to be quite hard to fail. Like that's, I think that's just my good keeping in mind. Like the cost of failure is going to be very high. So, and that's well understood in the context of the IMO as well. Granted, and, and, and your, your reference five percent which comes from the um zipping shipping zero emission fuels report that was uh 2030 progress uh update which i think you've been referring to at the summit i guess the sort of obvious thing is whether it's shipping or whether it's steel or ammonia or general industrial decarbonization or heavy good vehicles um there's lots of reports saying we should get there and it makes lots of cost sense to get there and there's lots of people saying we'll produce hydrogen but there's still a reluctance i think in general and this isn't by the way just hydrogen i think this is also biofuels this is electrification this is just generally decarbonization. There is a sense that people don't want to pay for it unless they have to, back to regulation, or uh, it becomes cheaper, frankly. Um, you know, so either it's cheaper and they are at a competitive disadvantage or they're required to. So maybe I just wanted to ask, what is kind of your sense on that demand gap piece, right? I mean, if the ambition is there, people see the direction of travel, what's kind of the reasons for that demand gap right now? Yeah, we see two reasons for that. And it's especially clear on actually on the demand, not on the supply side. The supply side, as you point to, we can see that that's actually getting there. And we're pretty confident that we'll get that. Again, like competition will be an issue. But it's the demand side of the ordering of zero emission vessels. I mean, if you were in the shipping sector and you sat inside my shipping bubble, you would think all's going spang spang. Like it's just gangbusters. But when you actually look at it in more granular detail, the headline grabbing orders, they don't actually add up to what we need, right? So that's part of it, right? And I think from what we, so we had our annual gathering, our annual summit took place a couple of weeks ago in Greece. And I think one of the things that we saw there is that that continued policy uncertainty, even though the ambition has been set, because you don't have the actual regulations that are going to support getting there in place yet, it makes it much harder like it means that it's much riskier effectively to place bets at this stage. So most of the orders that are being placed today are, I would categorize them more as strategic bets than necessarily like a, like pursuing a strategy, if that makes sense, if the difference makes sense, right? It's, it's more about saying, I'm going to put some different bets here. And there are a few companies, there's a few front runners that are really going full steam ahead. They've got a strategy for how to reach their mission and by when and whatnot, and they're moving full speed ahead. But I think for the others, it's it's much more sort of, it's it's a little bit more hesitant. And, and policy uncertainty just plays a huge role there. And I think one of the things that we see as a huge need in that context is that we know that there's a timeline at the IMO. But knowing that timeline and knowing that that policy uncertainty is going to persist 
over the next couple of years still, we need others to step in. So we think there's a huge role for industry itself. So first movers in the industry and coalitions of industry stakeholders, as well as for national governments to go in and fill that gap, if you will, and make some really concerted immediate efforts to make sure that we don't lose momentum in this intervening period and that we make sure that we stay on track to get uh, to that 5% target or even surpass it towards 10%. And another key element, or I guess what we could see is that sort of the, if you look at the one is the regulatory perspective, and that's maybe something that we can get back to, but there's also a lot that industry can do, right? So the willingness to pay from the customer side just plays a huge role. And right now that willingness to pay exists, but only in pockets, right? I think there are some sectors, say, in the mining industry or in the auto industry, or as we talked about earlier, this is the fast-moving consumer goods that are beginning to establish their own targets that also relate to their broader set of um, scope three emissions. And thus, for them, the rationale is beginning to be there to say, okay, we're willing to take at least some of the cost, but maybe not all of it, right? So we're, we're willing to pay some premium, but not all of it. So that, that helps, but you know, you need all of those things to come together and everybody needs to be part of taking a small piece of that risk. Um, otherwise, we're not gonna get to the end goal. And that includes governments, but that's, you know, that's a whole other, we can unpack that a little bit more as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they definitely, it, it, there's a couple of the Ikeas and the H&Ms and a number of these entities that are that are selling their green supply chain to their customer, essentially. I mean, it's ironic because IKEA's furniture is disposable, but um, <laughs> so they maybe <laughs> that's one part of decarbonization that probably needs to be worked on. <laughs> but it's easier, obviously, for shipping if the cargo, uh, if the if the end customer is asking for it and they're willing uh, to pay that dollar more for a pair of jeans. You know, it's much easier to, to um, spread out the pain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there have been some really great announcements in that regard as well. And I, I, I you know, I, I'm actually glad you, you mentioned the likes of IKEA and HMM, uh, Unilever and others, because they're actually some of the companies together with Amazon, uh, Target and a few others that have formed a coalition of cargo owners that use container shipping as they're sort of they're transporting their goods and they've actually made a commitment, right? So they've set their own targets as companies and they've also, also they've put out their first, there's a coalition of buyers, maritime buyers. So the, Zemba. Uh, is Zemba, exactly. This coalition of maritime buyers that's already put out their first RFP. And yeah. so it's only the first one, you know, it's, this is, this is going to be a process. We're going to need to do a lot of experimentation, what works, what doesn't work, how fast, et cetera. But I think it's really exciting to see that the cargo owners are taking those steps. And we're seeing that in other sectors as well. We're seeing that in mining. We're seeing that in, you know, the big sort of agricultural producers and others that all have their own targets and objectives and incentives to embark on this journey and to also carry some of the costs and take some of the risk. So that's, that's what he said. And then we see the financial sector playing a big role. I think there, again, like um, there's a, a, a well-established uh, framework that uh, our, so us, the Golden Maritime Forum, together with the Rocky Mountain Institute, played a big role in developing together with a set of banks that finance ships. And that, again, there's, you know, there's, so there's a, there's an effort from the financial side in terms of aligning their portfolios with established climate goals. And so, again, there are all these different kind of pieces of the puzzle that are incentivizing demand, but we're not there yet. So more needs to be done on that front is basically what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I think people underplay how important Europe is in all of this, because 
essentially from those original um, sort of banking regulations and different types of funds, eventually you're somebody's scope three. <laughs> like you, everyone in the world will get caught in the net uh, and will have to green in order to sell their products. And that's, that's fantastic. And I, I'm not sure Europe gets enough credit for that because um, really that's where it started. And, and also um, in the finance industry, that's, that's where the, these decarbonization plans have to be um, established and outlined and, 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 followed to some extent. Uh, and so it's um, uh, yeah, a lot of different uh, parts that are, are, are working together to, to hopefully get this done in, in time. I'd love to see like um, maybe uh, if you could give us an update on uh, some of the developments in ammonia and methanol vessels and bunkering over, over the last few months, anything new that's coming out. Um, lots, <laughs> lots to talk about there and quite exciting, right? <laughs> um, I think it's most clear in methanol. There's been a huge development over these past few months. So methanol as a fuel for shipping really had a, a big watershed moment uh, in September when the Laura Maersk is the name of the vessel hit the water. So this is a, a Maersk owned vessel. It's a, sort of a on the small side, a vessel that uh, my understanding is that it's going to be primarily operating in Europe, sort of in the Baltic region, container vessel. But it hit the water in September, had its naming ceremony in Copenhagen, where I'm based, uh, and it included bunkering on its maiden journey from Singapore. So that's super exciting because that basically means that it's gone from something hypothetical to something concrete that's already on the water. Well, not actual concrete, but steel that's already on the water and actual zero emission fuel that's already on the water, right? So that's kind of a, that sort of, that starts demonstrating the technologies and the future, future solutions and the business models, et cetera, on like in operation. And that's really, really exciting. I think the other thing that we've seen over the past year, pretty much, is a huge acceleration in orders. So last year was probably just a handful of methanol carriers on order, is that now, as of I think today, this week, last week, whenever we did the last count, there's about 200 on order, which is quite a bit, right? Mainly on the container side, but we're also seeing quite a few orders in on the bulk uh, carrier side, and even in crews and passengers. And most of these will be hitting the water in 2026 and 2027. So that's exciting, that's the good news. I think, there is some some challenging news attached to that, which is the supply of the fuel. So Maersk alone is struggling to actually meet their, the, the need that they have for the vessels that they have on order. So they need about 6 million tons of methanol to hit their 2030 targets. And there's just not enough around, right? So there's even in the pipeline, like it's, it's super challenging to see how they're going to be able to supply that amount of methanol for their vessels. And so what they've done is they've established their own business to do so, right? They've established a subsidiary that's uh, developing their own projects. They've got MOUs with a number of different countries. Like I think the first one that they did was in the, within Egypt and the Suez Canal area. So region. So there's, they're, they're basically very active in trying to secure the fuel for those vessels. Because of course, you know, if you have the vessels and they're running on conventional fuel, that's not so great. So the, so there, the huge, the technology is, we're really seeing it actually being a, you know, this is moved from the sort of the pilot phase into, okay, this is now a commercial technology, right? Commercially available technology. Um, but the fuel is a challenge at this stage and the fuel constraints are the challenge. 
On ammonia, I think we've also seen some big steps being taken over over the past months. And it's been quite exciting to follow because I think there's a lot in the industry who are waiting in in anticipation, sort of technology readiness, basically, um, because of the the promise that ammonia holds from a purely cost and scalability perspective. But the technology hasn't been ready. Like it's been this sort of holding pattern that we've seen, right? But it's beginning to come together. So we can really see the puzzle pieces coming together. And that's partially that's on the, or in particular on the engine or sort of vessel technology and design. So the engine's actually getting ready. So the first ammonia engine got its sort of uh, approval in principle from one of the classification societies earlier this year, from one of the other big engine manufacturers. The tests are going really well, like they're sending very promising kind of and making very promising kind of statements around how it's progressing. And they're already getting this, like, I, I think, what are they calling They're calling it reverse sales. I guess I'm, I'm not in sales, so I don't know what the hell that means. But basically, they have much more inquiries than they think they can reasonably meet uh, in on any sort of foreseeable timeline, which is which is quite an interesting sort of, you know, let's figure out how we can get that fixed. <laughs> and we can also see the vessel designs maturing. So even from 2021 to 2022, we've seen a huge uptick in sort of approvals in principle for various different ammonia-powered vessels, zero-emission vessels uh, taking place over that period of time. So so lots happening on that front. And we can also see the first order. So they're, they're what we, I don't really know what to call them, high-level orders, basically reserving a slot, <laughs> effectively. Wait list. Yes, wait list, sort of, right? Like it's basically saying, so So the first, first of those are going in, right, in anticipation of the engines becoming available. So we've got Eastern Pacific uh, shipping, has, I think, up to six bulk carriers uh, on, like, got a sort of reservation for those, right? There's another, uh, uh, Bosimar, up to 10, uh, Exmar, another European ship owner, another two gas carriers. So there's, you know, we can start seeing the first orders or, or slot holds uh, coming in, which is super, super exciting. And I, we think there's going to be lots more because there is that kind of, I don't know, can we call it a pent-up demand or whatever we want to consider it, right? So there is that there's a huge drive to get things ready so that um when the fuel is there ketchup yeah when the fuel is there and and when the engines are ready right when the engines are ready that we can just go 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 right Uh, and especially governments japan singapore norway are making a huge effort also on the sort of the regulatory and safety front um there's a working group with their whole set work plan at the imo they anticipate interim guidelines in 2026 so again there's this very detailed and very good kind of work plan across government, sort of both intergovernmental at the IMO, but also those that have a big stake. So Singapore obviously is a huge bunkering hub. You know, they're working on getting all the sort of safety standards and guidelines in place, running tests and those sorts of things, understanding how is this going to, how are we going to safely bunker ammonia? How do we make sure that we have the supply, etc.? And we can also see on the offtake, which has been really exciting, even in the past like month or two, um, huge announcements of deals being struck of various big global players in, in this field uh, for ammonia supply. So that's super. And, the, and I mean, even today, I saw another announcement, right? So this is this is not like a. It's, I will still call it a trickle, but it's a very exciting trickle because it feels like it gets it's getting like a from a blip blip to a like blip blip blip. If that makes sense? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's increasing and. Um... I mean, it's good because I think the, the, the methanol or the methanol ship that you, you were talking about, Laura, uh, 
It didn't use hydrogen, by the way. No. Um, it was uh, pretty hard for them to get anything uh, remotely green uh, to, to use on that ship. I think it was uh, 65, maybe 60 percent. Removal. Well, I mean, sad. I mean, but you know, this is this is the nature of the visa, Lissy. I mean, the first ammonia vessel out of Australia was blue or grey ammonia, right? So, I mean, this is the problem. It's it's scaling, isn't it? And and I guess that's the question. Maybe I was going to sort of try and push is that you know you can create all this production um you know and alicia i think is almost single-handedly trying to produce half the world's ammonia production at the moment um certainly i know i know i know she's giving me a look off screen listeners but you know um you know but, but you know what i mean is there's a lot of people out there working really hard and, and building some really exciting projects on that side and, and you know we certainly hear a lot of good noise um around sort of collaboration and you spoke about some of that earlier joanna um my only thing here is, you know, there's obviously a lot of work now or policy work around these national and regional corridors for shipping. If if you if you like, as a cynic like me, and I am somewhat cynical of the shipping industry, if you if you sort of look at it, you go, well, the the policy framework has been doing a very good job of knocking down excuses, right? So, you say there's no fuel supply, we've stimulated the fuel supply. You say there's no technology, we've got a bunch of people producing methanol ships ammonia ships etc cetera, etc cetera. you say there's no bunkering opportunity well we're now putting together this initiative to do the corridors so after that you've kind of got no excuse that's at least as a layperson looking in how it comes across you know is that how we should think about these corridors these national regional corridors is kind of taking that excuse away or de-risking if you like the the perception that ammonia is not going to be there or is there also an element of national positioning you know, is this also about people trying to put themselves on the on the map and reaffirm their position like Singapore as a bunkering hub or Rotterdam, et cetera, et cetera? I hope it's both. And, you know, in my job, I can't be a cynic, so I'm a hopeless optimistic, probably. But, but, but that's a necessary, uh, necessary precondition for my job. So I'd say maybe maybe it's worthwhile just doing a little bit of an explanation of what these corridors are about. So the Green Shipping Corridors is a sort of conceptually um, – uh, landed on the map at uh, COP26 in Glasgow, so in uh, 2021, uh, when I think it was 22 countries at the time signed an agreement to jointly develop green shipping corridors. And so the idea behind green shipping corridors is to that they're effectively initiatives or projects that bring together gather various stakeholders across the value chain to demonstrate zero emission shipping on favorable routes already this decade. So the whole point about is about it is as a sort of a, a way of experimenting together in value chain collaborations and doing it on routes where the conditions are particularly favorable. And so I think that speaks a little bit into your question about is this about positioning? I hope so, because that's where the conditions are going to be most favorable, right? Those that have a particularly big opportunity are going to be more likely to want to financially support or whatever have the incentives in place that allow green shipping corridors to succeed and we can get into the little more detail of what that actually means but i so that's kind of that's i think that's actually a good thing if it's opportunistic if you will <laughs> or if it's from that point of view right and so a lot of the countries and so right now they're about 40 green shipping quarter initiatives in various stages of maturity. We've got a report coming out um, at COP um, or in the run-up to COP, um, which is going to do a much deeper analysis of what they are all are and what stages of development and whatnot and maturity. But there's about 40 in total. There's quite a few container routes, Asia to Europe, 
Asia to U.S. West Coast. There are a couple of Asia to L.A. container routes. And there's also a strategic iron ore route between Australia and Asia under development. The first quarters are the ones that got off the ground the quickest are now getting to a point where they're finalizing their implementation plans. And they're the ones who've got the ones that have gotten the furthest along are also the ones that are now making cases for government support in order to be able to get to into like to implement them. And with, when we talk about this sort of strategic opportunity that some countries might have, I mean, I, again, I can get a little bit more into it. Like, I, I think like, if you take something like Australia to Asia, Australia has an opportunity. They have a, a, a sort of a strategic opportunity to be a, a green hydrogen producer, a, a producer of zero emission fuels for shipping, but for many other industries as well, right? And so for them, that would mean that they basically have an incentive to potentially support relatively small amount and small amount that's needed to get one corridor off the ground, this iron ore corridor, and that would then demonstrate the technology and help bring it to the maturity that it needs for commercialization, right? So I think that's sort of, that's a little bit of the thinking that goes into this. And and we've actually done, we've done quite a bit of analysis on this and recently put out a um, a paper that looks at like, what are some of those opportunities? And I mean, the biggest thing that's holding back implementation of corridors is that we still have this cost gap between the cheap fossil fuels and shipping has been using the cheapest of the cheap, the dredge that's left off when you refined everything else away. Like shipping runs on garbage, basically, right? <laughs> like from a, from a fossil fuel pers- perspective, right? So it's the cheapest stuff. And now we're going to be transitioned to gre- transitioning to green fuels that are much, much costlier. So how do we close that gap? Well, I think a traditional way of seeing that is that that needs to be closed through policy at the IMO. And that's certainly true. And that will come into effect. But in the meantime, from now until the IMO policies start coming into effect in 2027, 2028 onwards, what we can do is can we look at opportunities where national policy can help support that interim so that we don't lose momentum. There we really see national policy as sort of a bridge to when the IMO measures kind of go into effect. And the signatories to that original declaration, the Clyde Bank Declaration for Green Shipping Corridors, those are countries that have already expressed that that's something that they want to support. So that seems like a pretty good target. And, you know, Australia is one of them. The U.S. is one of them. There's various European countries, et cetera, right? And so so that's kind of a way of looking at it. And while IMO policy will be essential to the sort of the mass uptake of zero emission solutions in shipping after 2030, I think before 2030, I do see See that, and we see national policy playing and regional to some degree, but in particular national policy playing a huge role. And there's lots of different reasons to do it. Like countries can do it because they want to be seen as a climate leader. They want to do it because they see this can support their national energy security or get ahead as an eventual export market for hydrogen, as I just mentioned the example with Australia, right? So this can help them deliver on both this thing for shipping, which is great, which is what we're looking for, but it can also help them deliver on other strategic priorities. And that's sort of the opportunity that we're hoping that we can get more countries on board with. I think the other thing is that it's not necessarily new policies or new money, but that we can tap into existing policies and existing budgets to get that done, right? So it's it's not necessarily coming up with a bunch of new money, but rather 
tapping into existing schemes that are already there and seeing if we can either expand them um, to include some of this shipping stuff or if we can use them and apply them to the shipping context rather than be hindered by the fact that traditionally shipping has been exclusively under the purview of IMO and most countries are thinking, oh, well, we don't need to think about that because the IMO will take care of that. Well, yes, it will in the long run. But right now, if we're not going to lose momentum, we need to get this done. And I think the U.S. is doing a marvelous job of that. That's a really great example of where they're really saying, okay, well, these hydrogen hubs that they're you know, they're focusing on and putting a lot of money into this shipping could qualify there. Right. And so there's a, there's a lot of money on the table, actually. I mean, I do think in order to get the IMO goals, we can't just focus on the rich countries that are willing to do these green corridors and, and for, for whatever reasons, but we shouldn't be including more of the global South and, and finding ways that all of them can participate in, in this new hydrogen economy and, and find a way for it to be a win for everyone. I think we're going to need that to get the IMO um, uh, to get us what we want uh, in terms of, uh, of, of sticks, but they could be carrots in, in uh, developing countries. And, and we do have, I, I totally agree with you, we have pockets um, we have we have pockets all over the place that are unspent, um, and and so this this green corridor is is kind of like a demo project so that you can uh, get all the um, get all get all the lumps out of it, and make sure that uh, you can you can actually just copy it around the world um, more easily and just find out what the real problems are when you go into motion. But um, but it, I think it is really important that we not just push the U.S. or anywhere where there's uh, a pocketbook um, and, and really find ways to, to have the global south do well with, with this change, because obviously we, we're responsible for all of the um, pollution that is causing global warming. And then um, to have them pay for it would be just the ultimate uh, injury, I'd say. Um, <laughs> but um, but it, it seems to me that's where we're heading, which is great. And, uh, you know, you have we have the new um, head of IMO is is very dedicated to the environment, which is great. And we have eight years of him. So I think that's that's pretty fantastic. And actually, we I didn't realize the time go by because you were so fascinating. But um, we <laughs> it was it was wonderful having you on. Um, we just uh, it's it was really interesting. I actually had no idea about um uh, what an interesting career you'd had uh, even before um, GMF. So uh, thank you for, for joining us and, and for also explaining a number of things I'd probably gloss over and, and should have been explained in more detail the way you have. So um, th- thanks so much for, for being on. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. So Chris, what did you think of the interview? No, uh, look, I think, um, firstly, thank you very much um, for sort of, you know, you and Patrick for pulling together. I mean, I, um, as you, as probably a lot of our listeners know, and you, you guys both know, the maritime space is definitely one where uh, I am very much um, a bambini lost in the woods compared to you two, um, despite my, shamefully, despite the fact that I started life working in uh, marine and energy insurance, so I should really know it better, but um, it's, it. I think the way the industry operates, the scale of it, and then, you know, as Joanna was rightly pointing out, 
the level of cooperation that happens because of the existence of the IMO, I just find that whole dynamic around what that means as have you know the having this global regulatory body that can set laws that people do have to follow, but it just takes longer, and and how these things interplay together. Uh, it's just so different um, from other industries, and it makes it absolutely fascinating. So I, I personally found it a very informative and very interesting one. It's quite, it does force you to be quite reflective in some ways because you sit down and you go, hmm, I wonder how, uh, you know, this all plays together. And um, there was a line at one point where Joanna was talking about um, uh, bunker fuels and talking about how, you know, it's the, the rubbish of the rubbish of the rubbish. And it reminded me that one of the first meetings I had in the hydrogen industry when we started Proteum, probably first year or something into Proteum, I sat down with someone uh, fairly senior at one of the Scandinavian utilities and they said to me, look, bunker fuel is the place to go, decarbonize bunker fuel first because bunker fuel at the moment is pure waste and if you can force all the refineries in the world to suddenly have to pay to treat it instead of being paid to sell it to somebody the knock-on effect throughout the whole fossil fuel supply chain is absolutely massive because suddenly you've turned a product into a cost and that cost gets pushed across the whole fossil fuel line and bunker fuel is so bad for the environment it has such a horrible CO2 NOx SOx profile that um, actually if you really want to kickstart decarbonisation do it at scale knocking that out uh, is just such an obvious place to start and so um, that came back to me very strongly as we were going through the uh, through the interview and certainly the, the level of the importance I think because uh, we're so all aware of shipping, but we're not. Most people don't really touch it. It's good to be reminded of just how big it is and just how important all these moving pieces are. So I, I enjoyed it and found it very helpful. Um, Patrick, you're obviously far more au fait with the shipping world than I. Um, before we go to this year, what were kind of your thoughts on it? I mean, you, you've covered some of the, the the big beasts a little bit here here already, Chris. But you know, to the point. You know, directionally around three percent of global emissions. Obviously, huge, huge uh, challenges with heavy fuel oils um, as a, as the primary fuel. But you know, it is also, and I think this is one of the the things that probably should should be an indication of the opportunity and perhaps a reason for optimism is, you know, shipping. The shipping sector has done a fuel transition or adjustments before, right? And and the transition to low sulfur fuel oil. Um, focuses is you know was something that the industry has has onboarded and embraced you know there's obviously challenges with with changing out some of those things but you know it is a sector that by virtue as you rightly flagged um, the efforts of the IMO by virtue of the transparency of the stakeholders they are able to get some movement fundamentally we we will have continued you know step by step change there's obviously an imo trajectory for decarbonization that came out earlier this year but you know i think back to work that that w- we did previously with with the the good folks at gmf around poseidon principles which was the financing portfolio standards and it's for shipping fleets and and how financiers can see if their portfolio is aligning to the imo's decarbonization trajectory there's the point being there have been lots of efforts and initiatives across shipping for an extended period of time driving towards uh, this transitional kind of moment. And we're starting to see, obviously, in the first instance with the announcements on the methanol vessels, some of that uh, momentum and that movement that has been the, you know, the, the, the good work of many, many people for an extended period of time starting to starting to come to the fore and to bear fruit. So um you know, for the sector, for the the work that's going on, I think 
for a general audience, you maybe are now finally starting to see those those first shoots of action in a way that um, a good number of folks, much like like Joanna and her, Joanna and her team, uh, have been driving at for for an extended period of time. What about you, Alicia? Any thoughts? Well, I mean, the the part about the MEPC eighty, I find to be interesting. So you know the the Marine Environment uh, Protection Committee meeting eighty that happened this summer, and it was sort of a historic. Uh, agreement. And I think a lot of us didn't expect such good results. Um, We, uh, you know, as you know, Patrick, because your organization was involved as well, you know, we signed a lot of charters and we signed a lot of statements and we did a lot of, uh, you know, speaking with the IMO and and sort of arguing the case for um, low emissions fuels. And you know, even man, the the uh, maker of the ammonia engine, play, had a huge breakthrough, and they made a like a nine one one emergency call to the IMO to say we're going to have it, we're going to have the engine. You know, just so the IMO can be comfortable uh, having a levy and collecting it from from companies because there will actually be green fuels there for them to use. So I, I think that it was it's interesting how how surprised we were that that it turned out how we thought it should turn out, but we were really ready to be disappointed. And that's probably because the IMO's former target was net zero by 2100. So we thought we were working with, you know, we, we felt our work was really cut out for us. But um, so I, I think that was interesting. And, and then, of course, right after that, we found out that Arsenio is going to be the uh, new president of the IMO for the next eight years. He's the most dedicated to the environment. He actively went out and tried to find people who make green fuels to to make it known when they're going to be available so that he can have this argument, which is great. Uh, so I think um, you could hear in her voice how, how happy uh, we are about, about this. And there's obviously tons of more work to do, but we're feeling very optimistic. And I think like just a year ago, we probably would not have felt as optimistic. So... I think it was nice to hear why from her. But it was interesting. I think you hit the nail on the head to some extent um, here, Alicia, that, you know, um, you know, people weren't expecting it to be as positive this summer. I'd actually go a step further and I'd say actually most people outside of those in the maritime and the decarbonized maritime world even didn't have a clue what was even going on this summer. And I think that's one of the things that's so remarkable, actually, about the whole decarbonization of shipping story is that, you know, it's nowhere in the press, really. You know, you're not, you know, no one is really understanding or picking up the scale and the magnitude of this, right? Um, you know, and I uh, I was reflecting on a, again, I mentioned this panel I was on um, a couple of weeks ago, and um, we were talking about ammonia and talking about sort of the scale of the market opportunity. And I was saying, you know, when I was in Tokyo this August, um, we said, to, we were talking to one of the Japanese shosho, one of the trading houses, and they said, you know, we're really into ammonia. We think that's the sort of market opportunity. And we said, okay, well, what's sort of the, what's kind of the thesis? What, why do you feel so confident about the space? And they said, well, look, global ammonia market today is 210 million tons. Uh, if I look at the latest IMO targets from the summer, we need something like a, a billion tons of green ammonia by 2050. Um, if we as a company can do one-tenth of that, that's 100 million tons. That's half of the existing current global ammonia market. Uh, it's just vast. It's such an enormous opportunity and so that gives them and I guess gives a lot of people a lot of investors a lot of businesses a lot of um, you know a lot of organizations comfort that actually there's going to be this enormous level of demand and because it's international regulator the IMO and because it can impose it 
Um, it just makes it extremely effective. And even if you do have some moron elected in a country like the United States or UK or Europe or whatever, there's not much they can do because it's the IMO. Um, and that is super interesting. And I think people just, it's, it's there's almost so many acronyms and there's so much um, technical discussions and meetings going on that I think kind of people lose the wood through the trees as it were um, with this. But this is actually probably one of the biggest global decarbonisation movements undertaken in any industry from what I can see from a relative outsider looking in. I mean, Elizabeth Patrick, is that fair? You know, you guys are really in the weeds. Was that a fair way of thinking about this? I mean, I, I would say, and, and Elizabeth, this might be, be, you know, you might have a different view on it, but but I, I think we always look at the systemic perspective here. And whether you're, you know, a consumer of iPhones or, or pairs of jeans or you're a you drive your car to work or get a you know your boss or whatever else uh, to some degree you are a consumer of shipping services and when we start to see these kind of systemic kind of um, crunch points at ports you know where you you can convert infrastructure convert the fueling options etc etc you know the organizational um, impact at the sector level that you're flagging Chris also has this huge knock-on implication um, because it changes the dynamic of operation for if you you know talk about the tugboats that are or the you know the haulage vehicles that are on the port side or you know we talk about converting drayage trucks at ports um, in more generally and then out and into the system more generally so you know you're certainly right and it's certainly something that's beyond you know generalized kind of comprehension because of some of the the acronym acronym soup that you're you flagged but also because you know, it's it's one of the sectors that is truly just taken for granted, as as are many of the heavy industrial sectors. But its implications are very deep reaching, and I and I think that's one of the the kind of the the real takeaways here is that if we can make big movements in shipping, this isn't to the contrary to your point, and I suppose on the political side of like it's not national governments, it's international agreement. If we get change at that level, it has a deep. Uh, and deep reaching effect, but also a, a kind of a network effect that that is that is quite quite significant even beyond. Maybe I'll kick it to Alicia, who might have more more specific uh, sectoral thoughts on it. No, I mean I, I think that's right, and it is one nice thing about the IMO. I, I think there are 160 member states, and each state, whether you're the United States or you're a very tiny country, everyone gets one vote. And there's something that's very appealing about that. And because most of the member states are global south, that means that if you want to get something passed, uh, you have to make sure that it is in their interests. Otherwise, they're really not going to vote for it. And I think that's really helpful because we have a situation where global warming has been caused entirely by the, the North or developed countries. We're in the situation we're in because of all of the industrial development that happened in Europe and the United States and Japan, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, then we want, we want these global South countries or developing countries to pay three times more for their fuel. And they really, some of them don't even have access to any energy at all. So what I think is great is that it forces us to find solutions for these countries and to bring them into the hydrogen economy, to bring them into the green economy, um, and to turn this into a leapfrog um, 
possibility and a way to um, they can they can make green fuels. They can have renewables that actually uh, that they use instead of using diesel generators. They can uh, be part of the supply chain. There's so many things. It's it's all different. Every country is different. They've got different resources. They've got different things to offer. You know, obviously, comparative advantage is um, you know still alive and well. But um, I think that uh, I think there is something for everyone, and because of the structure of the IMO, it's the onus is on us to make sure that that, that happens, and that multilaterals are, are lending money and are investing in equity and projects in these in these global South countries that will make such an ambitious goal from IMO a positive for them as well, because they will be part of the pie instead of, uh, you know, being punished for, for being punished and then having never enjoyed the industrialization either, um, which would, is just crazy. And that's was sort of the direction we were heading. And so I, I think it's, it is, it is, sh- it's wonderful that there is one organization uh, for an industry. It's very rare. There is one for aviation, but it's not anywhere near as, it doesn't, it doesn't have as much teeth, I guess. It's not, it's not as organized, certainly not as organized around fuel. And uh, and so this is a, a very interesting situation. And I don't know about you guys, since we all went to like diplomacy schools, first thing they do is give you the bills of lading, right? I mean, <laughs> underneath all of the international studies, it was always all the shipping terms. And I always thought, what am I ever going to know? <laughs> what am I going to need this bills of lading stuff? <laughs> and then, of course, <laughs> it, it all came in handy later. <laughs> well, but what I think is interesting about it as well, which I think is something that, um, you know, uh, again, Yana was talking about it on the episode was kind of like the different ways that leverage is applied throughout the international system on decarbonization. So, you know, she was talking about how groups like IKEA, and I think you were teasing IKEA, but, you know, people like that, how they get together and they basically say that we collectively want you to do this and therefore we will pay a premium for you to do this, you know, or, you know, maybe not even a premium, but, you know, we'll just say it's a mandated requirement. You have to do zero carbon fuel, right? And if it costs more, we'll pay it. But the mandate is you have to have it. You can't bid if you don't do it. You know, that kind of knock-on spillover effect. And then to your point, Alicia, you know, if you're if you're in the global south, you know, it does need to... The fact that it is quite egalitarian in the IMO does mean that there has to be a quid pro quo. You know, there has to be a more obvious kind of what's in it for for me and maybe differently to, um, at least this is my understanding, but differently to sort of the UN where you've kind of got the Security Council that can kind of veto things they don't like very much, as we've seen in the past. The IMO, you can overrule people. And if I'm not mistaken, I think China was almost overruled this summer, actually, on this. Because I, I think if I'm right, China was quite resistant to these changes. Is that correct? Yeah. And they lost out to um, an island state. Maybe Patrick remembers which island state. But they basically, there was like heated discussion. And then China was just like, okay, fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, which was, which was great was that, to see. Right? Yeah, this is what I mean. How cool is that, right? That actually, like, that this is an international forum where, exactly to your point, Alicia, people are on a, a level playing field. And I think that is interesting for decarbonization. And it's, you know, I, the the report I wrote when I was at the World Bank was on hydrogen, green hydrogen in um, developing economies, you know, and actually, I think a lot of people have been seeing this potential for a while, whether it's groups like the African Hydro Partnership, the Asian Development Bank, who's been quite active in the space, um, the Inter-American Development Bank as well, who've been working with people like Chile um, and obviously now a lot of uh, businesses out there trying to build projects, whether it's companies like Intercontinental or like our friends at Satomi, 
it is really encouraging. I think you're right, Alicia. I think there's some massive leapfrog opportunities because the scale of some of these e-fuel projects being produced, decarbonized shipping, does create this really nice domestic spillover um, benefit, you know, potentially allowing decarbonized energy um, production, storage, and then ultimately utilization. You know, Patrick, you're talking about drayage, but you know, even things like backup power, frankly, in some of these areas, or, you know, some kind of heat, or even, um, Alicia, I think you were speaking in previous episodes about um, decarbonizing steel using ammonia. Well, you know, if you actually are able to, I don't know, be a massive producer of ammonia because your country like Namibia that's got great resources for it, for example, and you're using it for shipping, and then that creates an opportunity for some industrial development as well. That's really exciting, actually. Definitely. I, I think um, one of the things that's interesting is that all of the different sectors feel more comfortable with ammonia because there are so many sectors that can use it. So even if uh, you know, you're know you only interested in it for your ships, it, it makes them comfortable that there's demand for it for co-firing or for you know steel or, or whatever, because they, they feel more comfortable that it will be around and that people will invest in it. And so you're seeing interesting sort of um, amalgamations of, of groups that you wouldn't necessarily put together. Like um, Zemba, as she mentioned, this is like a buyer's club for um, green fuels. And it's it's the Amazon and, and the uh, all these different sort of brands that want to have a completely clean supply chain. So they want to have, you know, green shipping. And they've gotten together and they're, you know, going to do, be uh, basically a buyer's club. And that that is something that is really interesting and, and an interesting way to, to get people to actually take that step because nobody wants to be at the bleeding edge alone. <laughs> it's, it's kind of okay if you all bleed a little <laughs> and then you're heading in the right direction, but uh, no, nobody wants to take that just full fall themselves. Um, and, uh, and so I, I think that's why these, there are so many of these groups, as you say, I mean, they're not all trade groups. I mean, but there are a lot of groups to, to approach things because there's just so many different actors that are related. And I think it's one of the things you also pointed out about, um, or what, what Patrick pointed out about the Poseidon principles. It's interesting the way that banking and insurance are actually two avenues where you can get a higher quality standards because once you've, once they've agreed that they're only going to have a portfolio that is X, you know, Descartes has X amount of emissions or, or what, whatever the agreement is around it, you know, they're heavily regulated. They have to meet what they say they're going to meet. And so then that flows down to the shipping companies and to uh, whoever is using them. I mean, eventually everyone in the world is somebody's scope three. So instead of the whole world falling to the lowest common denominator, which is the sort of old way of, of competing on price on the lowest price possible, when you're competing on green and, and just ESG in general, it pulls the whole world up. It pulls the whole world up to, to a higher standard. And I think that's actually really exciting and unusual. No, agreed. I mean, just a final reflection, because I'm conscious, um, you know, we, there's a lot of good content here and I don't want it to drag on too long. One thought for you both is that we are entering into by, you know, I think most standards, most people would observe a much less stable world than we've been in for a long time. And two of those things that we've taken for granted has been food security and energy security for most of the world, recognizing that the global south has, has always dealt with these things. But certainly the um, 
the sort of more developed world has probably not really had to deal with these things for a while. And I'm just reflecting on whether or not this transition towards sort of this large scale green fuel economy based on this level of international collaboration that is um, the international efforts to decarbonize shipping, whether that's a bright spot that we think will continue to provide a forum for international collaboration, even when other parts of the global system fray a little more, or whether there is a risk for people looking at this that actually um, all the good work and effort that's being done here gets kind of lost or caught up or pulled into the more complicated geopolitics that we are seeing at the, you know in the world today where there is a you know an uncoupling of supply chains where there is concerns around sort of different poles and axis of influence and, and power developing and in some ways are kind of um, I'm not going to use the Larry Fink um, and, J- and Jamie Dimon terminology that was in the FT recently about kind of a return to 1938, but certainly a, a much more divided world. Um, so does this kind of become a casualty of that or is this actually a forum that helps keep people relatively positive? Maybe I can ask you both to share a view before we wrap up. I think that's a big question, I think, Chris. Um uh, fun- fundamentally trade is trade and trade has been going on whether it was 1938 or it was uh, the last 20 years if you if you look at it more generally fuels are still traded and have been traded for more than hundreds of years right like uh, this opportunity both on the technology side um, and i think to to somewhat to to what alicia flagged as well and to to your report when you were at the world bank some of the democratization, for lack of a better word, of fuel availability offers a pathway towards continued progress on, on this front and and also uh, a re- potential to reduce at least the volatility in, in some of the pricing that has, you know, at various times uh, caused distinct harm and challenge to continued trade and continued inter-engagement inter- around commodity development and, and sale and use you know one can only be aspirationally positive about it but to say it's the same or to look back and say oh we're going back to that i i, I find that just generally hard to believe this world is far more integrated far more connected in far too many ways to to remotely go back in time to a time where the body and volume of connective tissues that exist between any individuals, even more than countries now, simply didn't exist in the same way. Uh, I would hope this is a bright spot. To your yeah, point. I definitely agree with that. If you want to make comparisons to the past, I think have been living in the Gilded Age. <laughs> Once again, you know, you have the highest Gini coefficients in the US ever. You have the people who make the most money making paying no taxes and buying ridiculous things with their money. Like in the Gilded Age, they dipped everything in gold because they really honestly had nothing more they could do with their money. It never occurred to them to pay people that work for them more. It was just, you know, have more lavish, more grand, more glitter on everything. And uh, if anything, I think that people are realizing and most people agree that that you know global warming is happening it's hurting a lot of people not all in the global south it's hurting around the world and this is actually something that unites us to 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 basically defeat this this common foe and you know i think actually this is a is a good 
antidote to having um, the polarization or the multipolarization that we had in, in 1938. I mean, if anything, this decarbonization dedication, which we really see from most countries, they're extremely interested in, in this. I think that's that will be something that ties us together as opposed to um, pulling us apart. So it's a bright spot. And, and it's also, I think, a, it's a very influential, influential circumstances. Well, that's exactly the kind of optimistic answer I wanted to hear. Um, and I really, frankly, don't have much more to add to that. I think that's a lovely, cheerful note. Um, international shipping, leading the way in decarbonisation and helping to keep people and communities uh, together. I think that sounds like a great way to land, don't you? Okay. Well, um, perhaps with that, then, Chris, let's end it there um, and look forward to continuing this grand theme of the geopolitical implications of our, of our guests as we go forward. That was Everything About Hydrogen, hosted by the team, Patrick Malloy, Alicia Eastman, and Chris Jackson. If you have a question for the Hydrogen team or any of our guests and would like to get in touch, you can shoot us an email on info at h2podcast.com. Or alternatively, you can follow us on LinkedIn or tweet us. Our handle is at About Hydrogen. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.